Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Petra Gerda to discuss her new book, The Politics of Peace, A History of Peace Movements During the Cold War. Dr. Gerda uses her research to move past simplistic narratives of idealistic and naive pacifists to better understand how these movements shaped politics during and possibly after the Cold War. Dr. Gouda, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, thanks for having me, Zap. So uh, I'm Petra Gouda. My um, field of specialty is uh, U.S. foreign relations history. Um, I'm originally from Germany, came here for graduate school, um, and somehow got stuck Um um, but my interests were always sort of looking at U.S. history more from a global perspective. Um, my first project was uh, a little more narrow on uh, the U.S. occupation of Germany. Uh, and then I wanted to do something broader. I wanted to take it into the 1960s and look at it more globally. Uh, and that gradually over many, many years led me to um, what is now this book, The Politics of, of Peace. And how did you, what specifically led you to this project, The Politics of Peace? So originally I wanted to look more closely at the 1960s, um, at sort of transnational relationships between um, student protesters in the U.S. In, uh, uh, and in Europe specifically. And when I started this project, um, many years ago, I realized that there were very, very few contexts, direct contexts. Uh, and it made sense because these were young students who didn't have the funds to travel widely abroad. Um, and so I looked instead, I, what I found instead was an older group of, um, I wouldn't call them activists, um, because they, they, their activism was a little, um, less out in the open, um, um, and it started much earlier in the late 1940s or the mid, you know, really right after World War II. Um, there's this great book that Martin Klimke wrote. Um, the um, I forgot its title now. Um, um, I'm totally blanking on it. Uh, but he did he did write the book that I wanted to write, and it's a really really good book. But he confirmed my suspicion that that there were very few direct sort of context uh, contacts between those um, um, different student mm-hmm. groups, um, and so that led me to a different group of um, more um, well situated middle class, middle aged, and sometimes older um, um, intellectuals and non governmental political activists uh, that I then write about in this in this book and they included scientists uh, they included um, um, political leftists they included later um, a lot of women uh, women's groups religious uh, advocates um, and that was how then gradually the the project took shape over over many years so before we dive into the structure of the book um, just sort of briefly, What's your elevator pitch for this book? What what's what's the topic? What's your argument? So um, the main uh, thesis really is that um, a politics, what I call a politics of peace, emerged in the nineteen fifties and sixties as a result of this sort of gradual convergence between um, between a realist approach to the Cold War and idealist approach. Um, so. Um, and I'm, I'm arguing that rather than looking at these peace advocates and world government advocates of the 1950s and 60s as these naive idealists, 
we have to look at them as uh, shrewd and pragmatic political uh, operatives who realize that they will not make a difference in international politics um, unless they make it um, to, unless they make an argument that peace advocacy reduction of nuclear armaments um, is a realistic pragmatic and really the only solution uh, to the Cold War. Yeah. So then let's begin with your first chapter, which begins with that great old Roman adage, if you want peace, prepare for war. What are you looking at here? So I thought I would start with um, the with what everybody knows about the Cold War, the political elites, uh, the political wrangling between the Soviet Union and the United States, mostly in the early uh, Cold War pe- uh, period. Uh, and it reflects really what I'm trying to do in my larger work to connect the political top level to grassroots movements. So in the first chapter, um, I'm looking at how peace, the term peace, the concept peace is is basically used um, and also abused by both the Soviet leadership and the United States. So I look at peace really sort of as this Orwellian um, tool um, of Cold War power politics. So the Soviet Union sort of slapped peace on everything they did internationally. Uh, And of course, we all know that they at the same time also were uh, working on developing their own nuclear capabilities um, that they had the same idea, a very similar idea as the United States, that in order to preserve peace, they need to be prepared for war. But in a way, that is an Orwellian concept, like the peace ministry that, you know, whose purpose is to to wage uh, war. So I'm sort of looking critically at both these um, official pronouncements uh, of peace, and I'm finding literally that they turn things upside down, that everything, including NATO, uh, when you look at the signing ceremony for uh, for the NATO pact, every single foreign minister who speaks says this is a peace pact, uh, even though we all know it's a military, it's a military alliance. Um, and um, the U.S. really initially says we have to be against peace, which leads to this uh, absurd idea that peace should be associated with communism and therefore the U.S. has to be against peace. Then they realized that makes us look really, really bad internationally, especially in the global south. So by the early 50s, they developed tools and, and ideas to uh, do something very similar to the Soviet Union um, to develop food for peace, atoms for peace. Um, later, Kennedy's um, um, Peace Corps project are all uh, kind of uh, ideas to um, and concepts to make them look they're for peace, even though they're not giving up any of their sort of aggressive, strong uh, military policy. And the U.S. has this this idea. Uh, this concept, peace through strength, which basically means we need to arm ourselves uh, and win the nuclear arms race. And that's the only way to secure peace, which is, in a way, an absurd concept. And then in your second chapter, um, you observe a sort of split going on between different segments of the left, especially in the United States, but elsewhere, too. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so so chapter two three, four, and five um, are really sort of more thematic chapters where I take different groups, different constituencies, uh, and look at at sort of more of a grassroots level um, of how other, other groups defined peace and sought to end the Cold War. And the first one, this is in chapter two, is sort of the political left, which has long been associated with peace activism. Um, and I tried to take the communist peace uh, associations seriously to kind of strip them of this um, um, of this sort of veneer that they were simply front organizations for the Soviet Union and look really at who makes up these organizations uh, above all the World Peace Council, 
what motivated um, um, activists and leftists in the West to join the World Peace Council and what happens to it over the 1950s and into the 1960s. Um, and so it leads me to a lot of scientists who, um, um, some of them, you know, a lot of them are communists, but they also feel genuinely that that the only way to preserve peace is to actually uh, engage directly with communism and that communists, that communist ideology is best equipped, better equipped toward peace uh, advocacy, toward maintaining peace than than capitalism is. Um, and that goes back to Lenin's idea about imperialism and, and capitalism and these kinds of things. Um, but there's at the same time a group of leftists who feel increasing unease with the World Peace Council as it becomes more and more a um, um, sort of tool for the Soviet Union when they begin to uh, cover up certain um, um, Soviet policies that are clearly uh, militarist, like the striking down of the Hungarian uprising in 1956, and then later um, in 1968, Prague Spring. Um, so, so there is this split and this divide within the left um, um, that sort of shifts uh, advocacy over the course of the 1950s and 60s. And that's going on within the Soviet Union. Is there any sort of comparable movement or within Soviet-led organizations? Is there comparable movement on the U.S. or Western side, quote unquote? Um, there are a number of, of uh, peace advocacy groups in the, in the West, um, but they're not, they're not associated with the political. These political leftists often then turn toward other um, toward other groups and other organizations like SANE in the mid-1950s, uh, and I talk about that in Chapter 3. Um, and uh, many of them remain independent. For instance, Albert Einstein, until his, his uh, uh, death in 1955, is very active but never joins the World Peace Council. Um, he joins with Bertrand Russell, um, the British uh, philosopher, um, to craft this Russell Einstein manifesto uh, in 1955. Um, there are other leftists like Albert Schweitzer who also act independently, but they refuse to join uh, any organization. And they're just sort of, um, because of their name recognition, because they already have a reputation, um, they... Um, find a voice in the literature and periodicals. Um, Norman Cousins uh, is another um, activist. He's the uh, editor of the Saturday Review of Literature. And when you look at that um, journal, that magazine, it really spends a great deal of its, um, its pages discussing nuclear war, discussing peace, uh, and Norman Cousins really gives a voice to the non-communist um, left side there, but it's not a particular organization that these 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 um, um, intellectuals can rally around. Mm. Now we've mentioned nuclear weapons, and, and Hiroshima really sort of hangs over this book and this time, period in time for obvious reasons. Then it leads into the Cold War. So the third chapter focuses on nuclear weapons in specific. And you've already mentioned same. So let's dive into that. I, I felt the need to single out the anti-nuclear movement in a separate chapter, but also connecting it to the emerging environmental movement, because I see a real split there in, in the way that nuclear weapons um, and nuclear war are being discussed. And that split is is sort of coming in in the 1950s, in the early 1950s. There's an early movement that um, focuses on nuclear weapons, on atomic, on the atomic bomb, on nuclear war, um, and also on the need to gain international control over, um, over nuclear weapons research. That dies down by the late 1940s when the Soviet Union develops its own atomic bomb. But the anti-nuclear movement rises again in 1954 in the aftermath of the 
um, of the disaster um, with, um, um, I'm blanking now on um, um, the Lucky Dragon incident, um, where um, the um, one atomic detonation in the Pacific goes horribly wrong, and um, um, the bomb is much stronger than um, uh, the detonation is much stronger than scientists had anticipated. The wind changed, and all of a sudden there was a, a broad area um, um, in the Pacific um, where uh, the nuclear dust basically rained down on the oceans, and one trawler, um, 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 fishing trawler, was caught in this, the Lucky Dragon, a Japanese one, and by the time uh, the ship uh, entered the port. Um, all its crew mem- members were already suffering from radiation um, sickness, and one of the crew members died within two weeks. Uh, this created a huge uproar because the fish, the tuna fish, had already entered Japanese the Japanese market. It collapsed the entire fishing market in Japan, and that created really the fuel for a new movement against not nuclear weapons, but nuclear testing, above-ground testing. Um, and all of a sudden, there is this, this shift in the argument saying, we're poisoning our environment, we're poisoning our, our fish, we're poisoning everything through these nuclear tests, um, and let's work to eliminate nuclear testing. Um, so the focus really shifts from nuclear war to nuclear testing. And they succeed in 1963 with the limited test ban treaty that Kennedy signs. After that, these two movements diverge. So the environmental movement um, moves into different arenas um, and the anti-nuclear movement um, kind of, it doesn't disappear, uh, but it's, um, 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 it goes into sort of different, uh, removes, removes itself a little bit from the environmental issues and goes back to nuclear war. Um, so that's the gist of, of the third, uh, chapter. Um, and the idea that all humanity is affected by this nuclear, uh, War, nuclear weapons, um, the, the threat of nuclear nuclear contamination. Now, the um, damage suffered by the Lucky Dragon was a consequence of a of a U.S. test, but other countries were testing nuclear weapons at this time as well. So, what does that conversation look like in in France or Great Britain or even West Germany, which doesn't have its own nuclear weapons program, but which is at least sort of aware of this? Yeah. So this this. Uh, um, really generates a a global movement um, against against testing. So I talk a little bit about uh, about Japan because Japan, of course, was directly affected by Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It had this this lucky dragon incident. So there's a very strong movement there. Um, the British are testing. The the French are testing, but there's not a very strong um, environmental aspect to the French movement. What's really interesting is the West German convergence um, 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 participation in this because the Germany does not have, um, of course, nuclear weapons. Uh, it's not directly affected by fallout um, as the Americans are. Um, um, and the, the British are also not directly affected because they're no, but they're, but they're part of that uh, testing environment. So uh, we have a very strong um, movement there with the emergence of the East, the so-called Easter marches. And that sort of blends into the fourth chapter because the Easter marches are very much um, um, driven by um, this, this religious leader, uh, Canon John Collins. Um, so there was a little bit of a difficulty I had with trying not to to have too much overlap between these, to separate out sort of the religious drive uh, from the from the environmental drive, um, but the Germans also then begin these Easter marches, and the Germans um, have basically the longest running um, environmental anti nuclear movement um, um, that um, that leads into the founding of the Green Party in the in the nineteen seventies and eighties. Um, in the process. Well, since you've mentioned this this overlap with the religious community, and 
I work on a similar topic, so I know how difficult it can be to sort of perfectly separate these guys out. They all sort of overlap at the end of the day, and they they know each other, which always makes things tricky. Yes, yeah. talk about that religious um, pacifist activism, and this is, I think, a really important chapter, just because anything to do with religion and diplomatic history just needs more attention. So I was really happy to see this included here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so it's, it's um, again, in, in all of these chapters, I'm trying to sort of make the connection to sort of a, um, you know, what I call in the title, a politics of, of peace that, that, um, um, and religion is a really interesting example because um, it grows out of religious leaders. You know, we have the separation between church and state and religious leaders uh, traditionally uh, always felt like they they should not interfere in politics. And peace plays a really, really important role, of course, in, in most religions. Um, but it's a kind of inner peace, a spiritual peace. Uh, and I see a real departure in the post-war period for religious leaders. And I, I start uh, really with with the German uh, Protestant church because there is this real sense that um, the churches in Germany have failed, um, have failed, uh, Germany have failed to stop uh, Nazism um, and that there was a tremendous sense of uh, guilt and responsibility um, within within some corners of the Protestant Church, um, and so we have really we see in the in the post war period um, in Germany, in Britain, in the U.S., um, but also elsewhere, an understanding that uh, church leaders or, or um, um, religious uh, advocates, religious leaders have a moral responsibility to speak out if, if something, if there's a moral wrong within the political system. And a lot of the more liberal, um, progressive um, religious groups and individuals that I'm talking about here felt like the Cold War is fundamentally immoral. Atomic bombs, the use of atomic bombs is fundamentally immoral, uh, and therefore they have to speak out. Um, and they develop a religiously inflected politics uh, of peace in the, in the process, uh, where they speak out, where they uh, basically remind uh, political leaders um, that the use of atomic bombs is immoral. And... Uh, Leaders like Martin Niemöller, the German Protestant um, um, minister, um, includes even the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki as fundamentally an immoral and criminal act. Um, And so they band together, they develop international relationships, and they reach out to the other side on the Iron Curtain, of the Iron Curtain. They reach out to Eastern Europeans. um, and communists, um, and also Orthodox Russian leaders, uh, religious leaders, in order to end the Cold War and eliminate nuclear weapons. Um, and it's a very strong movement that also has, um, I, I see their real implications for the uh, political evolution of the Cold War. Um, so one example I'm using, and here again, there's this overlap of different groups. Um, uh, one particular incident is is the making of the Test Ban Treaty, where um, Norman Cousins, who I talk about in the third chapter, really um, does sort of this informal shuttle diplomacy uh, between Kennedy, uh, the Pope, uh, who inserted himself in 1963 and and the Russian leaders um, and helps craft this um, um, test ban treaty. Um, the Pope himself, Pope John XXIII, uh, comes out with this encyclical, uh, Pachum in Terris, where he talks about politics, where he talks about atomic weapons. Um, and um, he is dying of cancer um, in the spring of 1963, um, um, 
right after he comes out with the with the encyclical, and he so he does not see the signing of the test ban treaty through. But he had a lot to do with um, um, making Kennedy um, um, sort of um, facilitating basically the signing of that of that test ban treaty. Now you comment a little bit on the sort of efficacy of, of some of these groups in in creating a kind of shuttle diplomacy that previously was sort of absent. One of them is the American Friends Service Committee. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about them. That's right. Um, the Quakers are really uh, one of the most fascinating groups, um, I think, in in all of this in the post-war period uh, because they they are the only peace advocacy group in the post-war period in the United States. So I'm talking specifically about the American Friends Services Committee, which is um, a group within the Quaker religion. Um, And because Quakerism has historically always been a pacifist religion, they are the only ones who escape that charge of being close to communism. Um, And they have actually tremendous contacts, personal contacts to leaders within the U.S. government, but also they receive open doors um, in East Germany and Eastern Europe. Um, And I found this um, um, ad hoc committee um, that, or or a group of individuals that was set up by the American Friends Service Committee um, who was sent to West Berlin in order to very, very focused and, and narrowly work toward reconciliation between East Germany and West Germany. Um, and uh, so they operate right, they, they begin their operation right after the Berlin Wall um, comes up in 1960, in 1961. Um, and they are received with open arms by the East German leader, Walter Ulbricht, by, you know, they have um, um, open doors everywhere. Um, they do not, in the end, succeed in breaking down um, these these barriers toward reconciliation uh, in the early 1960s, but they lay the groundwork and and they do a lot of these informal meetings uh, in Germany, but also in places like Switzerland or in Eastern Europe, uh, where they bring together political leaders from East and West to keep certain channels open. And so I see there um, a real porous kind of iron curtain or wall um, that these religious leaders can break through without incurring suspicion um, um, or or being charged with um, 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 treason or any other kinds of, of uh, political suspicion. Um, and that's a really important avenue that they pursue that is open to them uh, that that helps in this dialogue, and that's something that we, as diplomatic historians, have traditionally ignored because we're looking too much at political leaders and at state functionaries um, and see only closed doors and not these open doors through the back back channels. Now, your next chapter uh, this focuses in on gender and specifically these kind of these gendered notions of peace. And how that relates to women. And there's mm-hmm. a long history of activism among women's peace organizations. So tell us what you focus on here. Yeah, so this was a difficult chapter to write, but also one that is probably most dear to my heart because I am interested in in looking at, at gender and foreign relations. Um, difficult because I had to pay attention to both the concept of gender as an analytical category. So how peace itself is gendered in many discourses, but also focus on how women approached peace advocacy and to make sure that those two are not being conflated. Um, so women, women, of course, were active in all sorts of peace advocacy groups. They were active in the, in, in the religious movements. They were active on the political left. They were active in the environmental movement, but there were certain groups um, 
that focused very specifically on peace as a woman's issue. Um, and uh, I focused on um, three separate groups, but I also wanted to make sure that we understand how talking about peace advocacy was often gendered. And by that, I mean that a lot of um, um, political, uh, but also but also grassroots activists felt um, that if you were for peace, you showed weakness, that this was an effeminate um, kind of cause to um, to take on and that those who advocated for peace were uh, naive, were emotional, all sorts of uh, connotations that we usually associate with um, um, with the female female or or feminine or effeminate um, uh, attributes. So that was one issue that I saw emerging and evolving over time um, in and in a kind of twisted way because we when we have the emergence of a new sort of black power movement, um, and militancy in the 19, the anti-war movement uh, in the 1960s, there were a lot of activists who felt like um, nonviolence, peace advocacy uh, really was weakening movements. Um, and I get into that more in the, in the sixth chapter. Um, but women's groups, um, those who joined specific women's groups, like the Women's Strike for Peace, uh, like another um, um, mother uh, for peace um, and the um, um, Eastern European or Central European um, women's uh, group, the WDIF. Um, a lot of them, um, specifically Women's Strike for Peace and another mother for peace, um, capitalized on their roles as mothers um, in order to um, advocate against the Cold War, to advocate for a politics of peace, uh, because they felt like um, their children were being contaminated by nuclear testing, um, their children um, were in, in danger, especially their sons, they would have to send their sons into war. So they capitalized on, on those attributes that were specifically um, related to women as as mothers um, and and wives in some cases in order to call for uh, an end to the Cold War. Um, and it played into these uh, traditional stereotypes um, that women were naturally more um, more peaceful um, and that therefore they uh, were better, able to develop a politics of peace. Um, so these women really walked a fine line. And I see over the course of the 1960s, a kind of um, fissure emerging between these older women who were mothers and the younger uh, women who were engaging in the civil rights movement, in the anti-war movement, who really didn't necessarily um, buy into that argument of these older, um, of these, of these middle-aged or older, older women. Um, 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 some of them, of course, were, were already active in the interwar period, um, um, as, um, um, and, and were formed in, in World War One. Um, so there were some older women who were, um, who were still quite active, but who had difficulty connecting to these uh, young women of the civil rights movement. Now, your sixth chapter also looks at fishers, this time um, from the perspective of decolonization. So talk to us a little bit about pacifism, peace movements going into this period, and then what happens as a result of decolonization. Yeah, we, uh, this to me was sort of, the, the 1960s is really... Um, a, a a period where some of these arguments um, get turned on their heads and positions actually shift. And I think that we often uh, are 
are not aware of this. And that is this turn from um, um, nonviolent, peaceful protest to an embrace of um, militancy, all in, in the name of peace in some ways, because the goal is always the same to uh, achieve peace, a peaceful world and equality. Um, and what I'm arguing here is that uh, once we look at peace advocacy and the need for peace in the global context, we have to engage with decolonization and the decolonization movement. Um, and that's where these ideas about nonviolence um, um, really run into problems. Um, and I see uh, the anti-war movement, I, I want to be very careful and very precise in saying that the anti-war movement of the 1960s is not a pacifist movement. Um, so it's a different kind of, uh, has different origins, um, and it's not as... Um, much aligned with peace advocacy as these earlier groups and people I've talked about um, um, are. And that's where we see sort of very little overlap. There's an attempt, there is sort of a an attempt to reach out by these older new leftists with the student movements, um, but they're not always succeeding. Um, and I see decolonization and national liberation movements um, as um, developments that really called into question the validity and the success, the possibility for success of nonviolence um, um, and of, of critical importance here is uh, Franz Fanon, whose book, The Wretched of the Earth, is widely read in the early 1960s by um, students uh, in in Western Europe and the United States, um, and Franz Fanon's argument that <clears throat> violence is really inevitable, um, an inevitable aspect of the process of decolonization, because no colonial master will uh, peacefully and willingly give up his or her power, uh, and therefore the only way that um, the colonized can free themselves is often through the process of, of violence. And some uh, parts of the Western civil rights and um, student activists take this to heart and argue that in order to change the system in the West, violence also is an important aspect of that liberation. So they'd shift really from um, world peace to liberation. Uh, and that leads some to actually argue in ironically very, very similar fashion as early Cold War um, um, Cold Warriors in the US and the Soviet Union have argued, meaning that freedom is the most important thing. And if we need to pick up arms and and um, fight uh, for freedom through violence, then then that's legitimate. Um, and there are many intellectuals who help this argument along without ever themselves resorting to violence. Those include Jean-Paul Sartre in France, uh, Herbert Marcuse in the um, a, a German exile who moved to to the United States. Um, and they facilitate that kind of argument in the process, which then goes horribly wrong in some cases with the emergence of terrorist movements um, in the U.S., in Japan, in Italy, in Germany, elsewhere, um, that engage in bombing attacks. The Germans are uh, quite um, uh, um, militant, quite extreme with assassinations, uh, kidnappings, um, of political and corporate leaders. Um, the American weather underground is uh, a little more mild-mannered. Um, in they, they plant a lot of bombs, but they uh, try to not harm human life in the process. Uh, but, uh, but there is sort of an acceptance of violence and militancy, and they see themselves in the same vein as these national liberation fighters People like Che Guevara, uh, Ho Chi Minh, 
um, in, in those, uh, those kinds of um, um, militant leaders. Um, and that leads to a kind of flipping of the arguments because at the same time I see in the 1960s, and I talk uh, more about that in the, uh, in the seventh chapter, that politically um, these arguments of these earlier peace activists um, 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 starts to succeed and starts to reach the upper echelons of the political spectrum. Um, and therefore now it is these political leaders that argue more for um, reaching out to the other side of the Iron Curtain and developing a kind of new politics of peace that, that can succeed, uh, while those at the grassroots level are arguing for violence uh, and are arguing for um, more militancy. What happens to those sort of um, committed idealistic pacifists as a result of this shift in the 1960s? Are they left marginalized? Um, do they adapt their rhetoric to any extent? Um, what's, is there a shift? There? So I, I see in the 1960s several, several of these older leaders are trying to reach out to uh, these younger anti-war activists but without little success. So yes, they are becoming they are becoming marginalized um, by these grassroots mass protests um, um, because that's not necessarily their mode uh, of operation. Um, but in some ways, um, they're not marginalized because they still their ideas and their politics move into mainstream. And is and and these politics are being picked up by uh, political leaders in in Germany. I single out Willy Brandt, um, and and ironically, even Nixon, who is this hawk, who is this uh, Republican, um, on the you know on the on the conservative side, uh, gives in basically to those kinds of arguments, and even though he kind of I see in the documents that he fights it, he still develops um, a kind of politics of peace. And so these um, these older activists, peace activists or advocates are marginalized in the public perception. They still maintain or their arguments are basically now becoming mainstream. And that is reflected in um, you know, the, the first success they have is this um, test ban treaty in the early 1960s, uh, but then it leads into uh, arms reductions treaties. Um, it leads into detente. It leads into us politic. Um, and those are ideas that were developed in the 50s and early 60s by these, by these uh, older pacifists. We've mapped out in many ways what is the seventh chapter. So I, I just wanted to send another couple of questions your way and see what you think. The first, this is always there's always excellent reasons for ending a book where it's ended, not the least being you can't keep writing for forever. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose to end the book in the nineteen seventies? Um because I mean one reason is that that including the nineteen eighties, which has a strong anti nuclear movement, would have made the book too big and unwieldy. But I do see a real political um, endpoint in the early 1970s, a real political scissor with the end of the Vietnam War, uh, with bronze Ostpolitik. So there's a political, a political endpoint uh, to this. And I, I started with in the political sort of geopolitical arena and I wanted to end in that geopolitical um, arena. So, um, so that's one reason to do this. But there's another reason in that I see the rekindling of the Cold War in the in the 1980s, in the late 70s, the end of detente. Uh, I see that as a fundamentally different. Cold War. So I would almost, I'm not yet prepared to say that the cold, the real Cold War actually ended in the early 1970s, but there are certain elements um, that 
that are in place that stay in place beyond the end of detente. Um, for one thing, um, I see Europeans in the 1980s not following along with Reagan's rhetoric and Reagan's policies in terms of international relations. Too much is at stake for Europeans. They have developed trade relations. They have developed um, other kinds of agreements with Eastern European countries, with, with the Soviet Union, that they're not giving up in the 1980s. And therefore, the Cold War that reemerges in the, in the 1980s, I see that more as one on the rhetorical um, level rather than sort of real relations. So I see it qualitatively as a fundamentally different type um, of of Cold War, so um, so I feel quite comfortable in sort of ending that story um, in the um, in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies um, that it is sort of a politics of peace that has become mainstream and that stays stays in place um, in the even in the nineteen eighties uh, and by nineteen eighty five we already have even Reagan um, sort of moving moving toward a very similar kind of politics of peace that was in place um, that, that Nixon had advocated earlier. And you've anticipated my next question, which is, what are some of the long-term impacts we see from this, this generation of peace activism, especially after the 1970s? Clearly, it filters down in the 1980s in your view. Are there any other areas where you see it? Um, so, so one long-term impact is um, that I see is um, in the uh, creation in, in Europe of, of the, the Green Party, uh, which is kind of I- ironic in a way, but it, it shows that um, grassroots activism um, works, um, but only once you develop uh, clear, pragmatic political strategies to influence to influence national and international politics. Um, Again, the student movements were really, really important. They generated a lot of discussion and debate, but only once, and and many, many student activists of the 60s entered mainstream politics in the the 70s uh, and 80s. Um, All over Europe and in the United States, Tom Hayden became a, a representative from California. We have uh, student activists uh, in in Germany and Britain who entered uh, mainstream politics. So it is kind of I see this as a um, a lesson learned in a way um, that you need to kind of develop pragmatic pragmatic policies uh, for idealistic objectives. Um, another. Um, you know, long-term impact is, is, is well known that we do have sort of an, an understanding that we need to put permanent caps on, on, um, nuclear weapons, um, that is constantly under consideration right now. I'm a little worried, um, that, you know, the current U S administration seems to kind of want to throw that lesson out the window. Um, and that is very, very, uh, worrisome. Um, but that was a lesson learned, and I'm hoping that we'll get back to reminding ourselves of, of um, that um, lesson. And a third um, long-term impact is that the um, um, almost absurd fear of communism disappeared by the late 1960s. There was a sense that communism, yes, it's it's an ideology um, that is um, really non-workable um, the way the Soviet Union had implemented it, but there was not this sense of this existential evil threat emanating from anybody who had far leftist or communist views. Um, that um, there was it, this, it came, you know, the idea that the Soviet Union was bent on world domination came to an end, really, with um, um, with in, in the late 60s and early 70s. And it was these older peace advocates who said, let's talk to these people. Let's talk to communists. Uh, let's, let's 
level with them and let's settle our differences. We can live side by side these two different ideologies um, and come to a good working, peaceful uh, cooperation, which is something that Khrushchev had sort of argued for um, in the early 1950s. Um, and this this policy, this idea really came to fruition in the late 60s and early 70s. Wonderful. I have just one last question for you. What are you thinking of working on next or what are you working on next? Um, so right now I am finishing up. I'm co-writing a book with Akira Iria on um, international history with a from a cultural vantage point. Um, so we're in the process of, of finishing that. And hopefully it'll come out next next year. That's more of a synthesis and synthetic work, uh, which was really fun for me to uh, to write. Uh, I'm working on a shorter piece, an article, um, which takes me actually back to World War II, um, uh, World War II propaganda um, and sort of uh, ideas of um, generating um, 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 basically sexualized propaganda in order to um, um, look into how uh, sexuality and sexual fears as well as sexual fantasies entered into um, psychological warfare. Um, and then after that, uh, I'm not sure. Um, as, as you know, I am taking over as a co-editor of Diplomatic History starting next month. Um, so I'm looking very much looking forward to that. Um, um, and, um, um, but other than that, I'm sort of trying to debate whether I want to move back into the gender, um, gender and foreign relations, human rights is something that I'm really interested in as well. Wonderful. I look forward to seeing where you go. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Zeb. Uh, it was a pleasure.